Okay, we're continuing our series uh, called Redeeming Our Rule, and uh, we're going to focus this morning on ruling through prayer. Um, and I'll begin here. You, you have, I have, we have been discipled and formed in prayer in one way or another. Oftentimes we don't understand and maybe kind of recognize the things that have shaped and formed us in our lives, but we have been formed and shaped by all kinds of things. Um, so the question for you is, who has discipled, who has formed you in prayer? Um, maybe you grew up Baptist, and so for you, uh, the question would be like, what, what, what does your prayer life look like, and what answers of prayer do you have? For others of us, we grew up Presbyterian, and a beautiful value for theology, and the depth of, of knowing God. Maybe not valuing an expectation of God answering your prayer, um, but a deep, vibrant understanding of theology. Maybe you're Pentecostal, and you grew up with kind of an emphasis of de- decreeing and declaring. It's a high view of expectation, maybe a lower view of reverence for God. Uh, again, an emphasis on de- decreeing and de- declaring, and, and, and that would not necessarily be a, a biblical stance. You can just decree something into existence. That's not the way life works, uh, and it's definitely not the way that Paul operated. He lived a lot of his life in chains, uh, and he submitted to the lordship of Jesus along the way. Maybe some of you grew up in a non-denominational seeker church, and God's like a genie for you. Maybe you grew up with the prayer of Jabez, and so you're, like, your thought is kind of like, I just pray for blessings for my, my life. And the goal here in your kind of understanding of prayer is that it's focused on asking God to bring comfort to your life in a way that God might not do. Uh, maybe more agnostic or maybe you just become cynical along the way, and you just, functionally, you, you're, you're faithful to wanting to follow Jesus in some ways, but agnostic in the way that you approach prayer, and you just shoot up flares when life gets hard or scary, but you don't really kind of lean into understanding prayer. Regardless, each of us have been formed in prayer in one way or another. It's helpful to understand where, where have you been formed. It's good to be aware of that, and and Jesus, he invites us into a way of prayer. And, and as a community, our desire is to push away areas that we've been formed that are counter to Jesus and allow Jesus to form us and teach us how to pray and maybe give up certain things that have been different than the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. So this morning, I have five points for us this morning. And a trigger warning, there is an uh, alliteration coming your way. So I want to prepare you, because I know some of you, you might, again, get triggered if you recognize that I'm going down that path, and I am. And so just want to prepare you. My first point is this. God is at work, and we're invited to participate in his work in the world. So our baseline text that we've been going through as we've been navigating through this Redeeming Our Rule series has been in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. I'd love to begin just by referencing that again in Genesis 1, 27. Thank you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we see that as the baseline, that we were called to rule, to partner, to co-labor with God. Above all other created things, humanity was uniquely called to partner with God in ruling on the 
earth. This is the theme of this series, that we're imaging God in our worlds, in both the cultural mandate and in the Great Commission. And then God steps on the scene. He incarnates himself into the life of humanity, and he dwells among us, and he comes as the rescuer of this world and the slayer of the dragon. And in his arrival, he reminds us that we're called to partner with God in our praying. And he gives us a clear depiction two times in Matthew and in Luke of the Lord's pattern prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. And so he reminds us, called a partner, to participate in the work of God here and now. John Tyson says that the Western Christianity has trivialized the Lord's Prayer, diminishing its true value and power in our lives. Now more than ever, we need to reclaim the power of the Lord's Prayer because it teaches us how to pray, orients our discipleship, frees us from the vanity and futility of self, and unleashes defiant hope. See, the Lord's Prayer invites us to redeem our rule through prayer. It's not impotent. It's not trite. It's not ordinary. It's not indifferent. On the contrary, it is profound in how it reorients us into something greater than ourselves. The Lord's Prayer does. It has an uncanny ability to disciple us in our praying of it. The way it focuses us on our identity. The way it focuses us on the worship of God. The way it focuses us on God's kingdom that's greater than our own kingdom. It reorients our lives. It's not muted. It's brilliant. It's powerful. And it invites us into this place of participation. The Lord's pattern prayer invites us to participate with God in the world. Leads to the second point, which is this. So Jesus leads us to have a posture that's likened to a child. He invites us to a posture, a unique approach in how we approach God in a specific posture. There's a posture that Jesus invites us to embrace, and it's that of a child. I got three verses for us just to think about. The first is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 14. He says this in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Again, in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 3, it says this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like, a, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And finally, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 21, it says this, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He was thrilled that his disciples, grown men, approached God in such a way as a child, and he celebrated that. Have you ever wondered why the Lord's pattern prayer begins with our Father in heaven? 
It's less about getting your prayer right, and it's more about how we approach God in prayer. So what is the posture of a child? I have three boys, and so I'll go first. Um, They're honest. They're not always considerate. They're not always looking to dance around things. Sometimes they throw fits. Like sometimes we approach God in a way that's different than the way a child approaches a father. A child approaches a parent. See, approaching God the Father as a child is how we are invited to approach God. Watch children and how they interact with their father and see in return how we're called to posture ourselves in approaching God. He is not depersonalized. He's not distant. He's not a dictator that's far off. He is our father, and we've been adopted into his family. And our greatest hurdle in prayer is embracing God as father and the implications of us as his children. But don't annoy him or frustrate him, but he invites them, invites us to come close. So what do we ask for when we posture ourselves as children? Anything and everything. We learn how to approach God with everything in our lives, submitting him not just the spiritual things, but all things in our life. That's how we're invited to posture our heart. And the dilemma is this. As we get older, we become more cynical and less childlike. True. As we grow up, we become more cynical and less childlike. The problem in the age we are in is that it is significantly easier to posture our hearts as a cynic than it is to posture our hearts as a child. And this is forming how we pray, approaching God from a place of cynicism. See, cynicism is the dominant posture of our age resurrecting the original temptation that says, did God really say? I mean, the same question hasn't changed since the garden. This question of cynicism, did God really say? Should we really approach God in this way? Is he really trustworthy? The the statement is the same as the serpent in the garden. See, nothing has changed. We haven't progressed past that temptation The cynic is always observing, always critiquing, but never engaging, never loving, leading to action. Summarizing the landscape of our generation, Yohani Sanchez says this. She said, unlike our parents, we never believed anything. Our defining characteristic is cynicism, but that's a double-edged sword. It protects you from crushing disappointment, but it paralyzes you from doing nothing. So we've learned from the Enlightenment. In the Enlightenment, we were taught a few things. We were taught reason and individualism and human progress. But then war, world, world, wars happened. Pain happened. And in return, that notion, that thought, um, that balloon got popped. And then post-Enlightenment came along. And in post-Enlightenment, you don't trust anyone. You don't trust God. We are now caught, taught to, to detrust Some detrust so many good things that you can't trust your parents and you can't trust what you were taught and you can't trust your biology and you can't trust anything but yourself. Only yourself can you trust. See, the story that was supposed to free us 
is really just swapping chains. And now we are putting these chains on and saying we can only trust ourselves and it's killing us along the way. We're swimming in the water of post-enlightenment, saying we can't trust anything. It goes back to what Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, that man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. It's this notion that we believe that everyone else is the problem. We can't trust anything but ourselves. And Jesus invites us to be formed by him and not culture. And as we are a people who are being formed by something, Jesus invites us to posture our hearts as children, not as cynics. To simply trust in a good God who cannot be controlled. This is our posture in prayer. Not cynicism, but that of a child. To make it clear, uh, a good way to see it is cautious optimism is how we're supposed to approach God. Caution because the fall. It existed and it exists. And it will exist until he comes again. But optimistic because of redemption. Because Jesus come and he gave us the spirit and he's at work in our day and time. Cautious optimism. Friends, we need to fight for childlike hope again. We are naturally drawn towards cynicism. And it's a good thing to even repent of our cynicism and be drawn again to a childlike approach. See, both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness and the child focuses on the shepherd. We're called to posture our hearts from a place of childlikeness. We have participation. We have posture. Third, the Lord's Prayer will forever be our primary practice to praying like Jesus. So in Luke 11, um, after the disciples saw all kinds of miracles, all kinds of profound things, the question that they asked Jesus was one very specific, one very important. In Luke 11, verse 1, it says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the question that they asked Jesus was, will you teach us how to pray? And he did. He taught them how to pray. He said this, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your, your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This prayer unlock, unlocks a life of prayer. It's training wheels, yes, but it's also a weapon. It's also a guide. It's also our oxygen. It's also a primary means of spiritual formation. It's also one that dethrones our idolatry of self. It enhances our vision of the kingdom. It resets us on our purpose. It should never be something we graduate from. It is profoundly beautiful and is and is a untapped treasure. So consider them. There's six movements within the Lord's Prayer. But first, our Father. He begins by resetting your identity on who you are as a child of God. He invites you to this posture to find joy in coming close to him. That he is knowable. He is one that we can know. And so this posture of our Father in heaven reminds us of who he is and reminds us of who we are. He is intimately 
close. Philippians 4 echoes this when it tells us, do nothing from, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We've heard that before, maybe sometimes even out of context. But the end of that section of Philippians 4 is gold when it says right before that, the Lord is near. And those four words are like a linchpin to open up prayer for us. That our Father is ever present. The Lord, our Father, is near. His grace and his nearness motivate us in prayer. And so we see a movement of our Father in heaven. We see a movement in hallowed be your name. This recognition that there is one who is greater than myself. It's reverence. It's holy. And it's asking God for his name to be greater in my life. For his renown and the affection that he created me to have towards him to increase. For him to blow through his spirit upon my heart and to stir my affections to the holiness of his name. And we need that second line of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. The ancients in the first, second, and third century needed to learn about God as Father. And we could do well to learn about him and his holiness. Tyler Staten says this, that adoration is not always the overflow of our hearts. In fact, it rarely is. It is an act of rebellion against the empty promises of this world and of defiance in the face of circumstances. And so this, this posture of hallowed be your name is a desire for adoration to increase in our hearts. It's agreeing with John the Baptist when he said that your name would increase and my name would decrease. It's the anchor of prayer and then it just continues on. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need in our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. It goes horizontal as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation. See, in times of chaos, we do not rise to the occasion. In times of chaos, and you've felt this before in your own life, that when, when chaos happens in your life, you don't always do well. You enter into like survival basic habits. And it was no different for Jesus. And his darkest moments in Gethsemane, hours before his arrest and then crucifixion, he entered into this place of chaos where habits kicked in. And how did he respond to God in prayer? Through the Lord's prayer that he taught us. He cried out to my father. He went on and said, your will be done. He followed through the thing that he taught his disciples to pray was the very thing that was at the core of who he was and how he prayed to his father. And in the darkest moment of his life, his habits led him back into that prayer. Eugene Peterson says this about this theme, that there is a prevailing bias among many American Christians against rote prayers, repeated prayers, book prayers, even when they are lifted directly from the Jesus book. This is a mistake. Spontaneity offers one kind of pleasure and taste of sanctity. Repetition's another, equally pleasurable and holy. We don't have to choose between them. We must not choose between them. They are the polarities of prayer. The repetition of our Lord's prayer give us firm groundings for spontaneities. The flights, the explorations, the meditations, the sighs, and the groans that go into the prayer without ceasing, toward which Paul urges us. So Jesus invites us to a very clear way to pray, through the, using the Lord's Prayer as a on-ramp, as tracks to grow in prayer. So we see participation, posture, 
practice, which leads to the fourth point, which is this. There's two parables that Jesus gives that teach us about intentional persistence. And so in Luke 11, we already talked about Luke 11, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he did. He gave them the Lord's Prayer. And then right after that, he gave them the story I want to read to you in Luke 11, verse 5 and following. It says, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And Jesus says this, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's this profound parable that we read. We see that we, we got this guy who has a friend come in town. And it's late at night, and they're not like us, where like you have like boundaries where you don't let anybody into your house at a certain period of time. You need to come the next day. They just showed up. And so the guy shows up to his house, and he doesn't just show up. He asks for food. And he's like, I'm out of, I mean, they, don't, they can't go to Kroger that's open 24 hours a day. Like, he's like, I'm out of food, man. I don't know what to tell you. He's like, I'm hungry, though. Kind of an annoying friend, maybe someone you need to have more boundaries with. And so he's like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go to my friend's house. I know he's like a big bread guy, and he loves making sourdough. And so, so I'm going to go to his house. And so he, he knocks on the door, and the friend knows who he is because he has the Ring app. And so he sees the Ring app, and he, he knows who it is. And so he calls him. He's like, dude, be quiet. My kids are sleeping with me. And you know how it is. For one, you shouldn't have your kids sleep with you. And if they are, it's typically bad news. And so they've just now gone to sleep. You don't want to wake them up again. You know what I'm talking about. And he's like, get out of my house. I might kill you. Get out of my house. Stay away from me. Like, that's the context of the story. And he continues. And he continues. Like this. Like the cries that we hear. He's continuing and continuing and continuing. And finally, the guy gets up. Why? Not because he's his friend. He's annoyed. He's frustrated. It's the persistence of the friend that led to the friend coming and opening the door for him. What is Jesus telling us then? What's the point? So I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. I don't know how you were formed in prayer. I don't know who taught you what. But I'm encouraging you to allow all of that to be submit to our Lord Jesus and allow him to reteach you what it looks like to pray. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Something powerful about persistence in our growth in prayer. And Jesus gives us another story in Luke 18 under this banner of intentional persistence. In Luke 18, we read this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this parable. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. 
For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, and neither I, I fear God nor respect man, yet because this, widow's, this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by, his, by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, who is our Father, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Another example, we got this cruel, unruly judge who doesn't give a rip about anybody. One person he cares about is himself. He has no authority over him. He is the authority over many. And he doesn't care about anybody's perspective about anything. And there's a widow who shows up to him. He's the judge, and so she shows up to him. And she's receiving injustice. We don't know the details there. And she pleads with him, grant me justice, grant me justice, grant me justice, over and over and over again. And it wasn't out of his kindness, but out of his annoyance, after him being beaten down, that he caves and gives her what? She wants. What's the point? To show them that we ought to pray and not lose heart. What is Jesus reminding us of? He's reminding us of the fact that we are invited into intentional persistence as we approach our, our God in prayer. The persistent friend and the widow get access not because they are strong, but because they are intentionally persistent, even desperate. And yet, friends, we live in an illusion in 2023. Well, we have what we need, and if we don't have what we need, we take out debt. That's the reality we live in. I know my wife and I experience that. We feel that firsthand. You guys feel it. We feel it. We live in an illusion where we are cynical about God actually entering into our world. I remember hearing a story about an African pastor who lived in a small village pastoring a community there, and he came to the, uh, to the States to visit some friends, and he was here, but just for several days. And where he lived, they needed God for everything. And when they came, he came here, he saw that no one needed God for anything. And after just a few days, he said, I need to go back to my homeland because I need to remember that I need God in my life. Friends, the American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. The American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to know how to learn how to pray. And we in this moment need to embrace that reality and do something with it. It's imperative for us if we want to learn to rule through prayer. We're, it's hard because of busyness, because of accomplishment, because of entertainment. C.S. Lewis called it the kingdom of noise. We have what we need. We hate being quiet we have assimilated into a, uh, a culture of hurry, and we're being deformed even if we don't realize it. Something is forming us when it comes to our prayer life. And Jesus invites us, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. In John fifteen seven, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, the emphasis is abiding in me, not asking what you want, but abiding in me. These are the words of Jesus. So we're called to participate, to watch out, uh, participate, to have a posture of a child, to 
uh, use the practice of the Lord's Prayer to live in a posture of persistence. And that leads me to my last point, maybe the most important one, is this. We can access the potency and power of God through intercessory prayer. I want to introduce intercession to you. What does that mean? It means to come between. To come to, uh, between, to pray on behalf of someone else. Richard Foster says this about intercession, that in the ongoing work of the kingdom, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. So you and I were created to reign. In, in Genesis 1 and 2, we know that we were created to reign, that sin has led us to the life we now know, but there's a promised king, and there's a promised kingdom that's coming. There's redemption that has come and that will come, and Jesus gives us a restorative prayer called the Lord's Prayer to guide us through this life here and now, which means this, that prayer is the means by which we push back the curse that has infected the world and has infected us. And Jesus' name is to pray with recovered authority, that it's only through the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection that we even are able to come to God in this redeemed place of prayer. See, part of our participation in this power is agreeing with Jesus' will. For example, in Mark chapter 10, we have this interesting story play out where we have this guy named Bartimaeus, and he's this blind beggar, and his disciples get really annoyed with him. Kind of leave him alone. Leave Jesus alone. He's calling out for Jesus. And he's, leave Jesus alone. Leave Jesus alone. And what did Jesus say? He says, bring him here. And so Bartimaeus comes. The disciples lead Bartimaeus to Jesus. This blind man sits, stands before Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him in Mark 10, 51? He says this. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What do you want me to do for you? Do you not think that Jesus knew what the blind man wanted him to do? But he wanted this partnership moment. And he said, what do you want? And so he asked. And then in return, Jesus healed the man. There's something mysterious and profound about this idea of intercession, asking God for something. We see it in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, this, this unique prayer, this picture of Jesus' reign. And in Psalm 2, 8, it says this, Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. That's pointing to the Messiah ultimately, but Charles Spurgeon said this about this, this passage, this verse. He says, remember asking is the rule of the kingdom. Remember this text, Psalm 2.8. If the royal and divine Son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. If you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you, Charles Spurgeon says, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is. And I beseech you to abound in it. We're invited to this place of power that God has given to us through grace alone. We have to demystify intercession. I've been a part of some wonky communities that have made intercession so weird. Okay? So we just... We just just identify the elephant in the room that maybe you're feeling. And we can't control God and his ways. We can't just assume we know God's will. 
and just pray it into existence as if we think that we can just get whatever we want. Sometimes, oftentimes, we'll get this, we'll land here in just a minute. God doesn't answer the prayers that we thought that he should answer. Some have made this weird guess, but the old idiom rings true that we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Throw out the bathwater, it stinks, there's poop in it. So throw that out. But preserve the baby. The baby's sacred. It's a sacred gift that Jesus has given to us in this gift of intercession. See, the Lord's pattern prayer is our space for intercession. Think about it. To ask God through prayer for his kingdom to come here and now. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That's intercession. Let, give us what we need today in our daily bread, God. Give us protection over the enemy. Give me the grace to forgive as you've been forgiven. What are we doing there? We are asking God to do things in and through our lives. Participation, posture, practice, persistence, and power. I'll close with a question and then a pastoral moment. This is the question I have for us as we close. Are your prayers too safe? Are your prayers just so safe that if God didn't answer them, you're good? You know what I'm saying? Like, God, bless the hands that prepared the food, and God, just give us good sleep. Like, if that's, if that's the ceiling for our prayers, can we, just, can we just confess that that's sad? And that we're missing the glory of the opportunity of the gift of prayer if our prayers are safe, that they could happen if he didn't intervene. Prayer is actually putting ourselves in a place of saying, God, if you don't show up, I don't know what we're going to do. Again, prayer might be the hardest thing, the hardest place in the world to pray might just be where we're sitting right now. And living in a place of safety, praying safe prayers, prevents us from the gift of God that he's given to us in this way. Are our prayers safe? Or are our prayers muted because of cynicism? I read a book recently and a quote that Tyler Staten said that if God gave you everything you prayed for this past week, what would happen? Just real time, that's been challenging me. It's been breathing down my neck and I've been challenged by it. If God gave you everything you prayed for this last week, not saying he would, but it takes us out of this place of safety. If I didn't pray for anything and just life lived on, or am I asking God for things in my family and in my coworkers and in my neighbors and in my life and daring to believe God with my generosity and providing for me in ways that are uncomfortable, posturing ourselves like a child. I'm reminded of this story. I know I'm going long today, but it's Mother's Day, and I heard a couple moms said that they might want me to do this or something. Um, <clears throat> there's this story. Uh, her name uh, of, a, of a single mama, her name was Monica. Uh, she was, because mamas wanted to have more time uh, just to breathe away from their kids before they have them the rest of the day. So you're welcome. They're in good care downstairs. Uh, again, I won't say anything else about going along. So uh, the mom's name was Monica. She was a single mom, a devout follower of Jesus. She had a, a child, a baby boy. She prayed over that child, over many of you mamas did, as many of you mamas did. She sang hymns over his life, but he grew up and the world changed. And this man became a womanizer and a drunk. Brilliant dude, but wasted his brilliance on some really dumb choices. But his mom didn't stop praying. She prayed for his son's salvation. She had a dream when he was 19 that he was going to come to the Lord. And she leaned in and she prayed. And nine years after that dream, he went on a trip of debauchery to the Mediterranean. And she stayed up all night praying for him. That very night, her son changed plans from where he was going, and he decided to go to Rome. 
And in a Roman garden, this North African dude sat and heard the audible voice of God. He opened the scripture and dedicated his life to Jesus. Monica's son's name was Augustine. And he went on to be one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. Prayer releases power. Some of you mamas need to hear the encouragement of Monica. We can partner with God in our praying. We can see God show up in ways in our lives according to his will in our lives. I've seen it, uh, just a couple, man, so many stories that just came to mind for me that God can show up through our prayers. I remember we used to raise support back in the early years, even before Sojourn, and we were doing this thing a long time ago and raising support. Actually, I was in India this time and raising support. I ran out of money. I'm in India, and it's not really good, like, fundraise in India. That's probably not the place to do it. And so I'm, like, out of money, and just felt like God was saying, pray for $5,000. That was wild. And I did, and I had, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm just trying to figure out this whole prayer thing like we all are. And again, this isn't about money. This is about God's provision, because I really was out of cash. And I, I went to check my email one day, and um, the lady who kind of kept up with my finances said, hey, just want to let you know that I a family decided to give you a $5,000 check. I sat at that computer in India and wept. Like, God for real heard my prayer. It could have been four, it could have been six, it could have been three, it could have been, like, but it was to the dollar, and it was just one of those moments, I'm like, holy cow. It was just a, a goosebumps on the back of your neck, like, God, seriously. I mean, I, another example would be 2015, May 14th, we lost our little dude, Theo through miscarriage at 20 weeks, and to this day is his birthday. And we pray that God would be with us through that journey. So the most painful moment of my life, and he was. He was faithful, and his presence was with us. Friends, he responds through our prayers. My question to you is how, what are you praying for in this time of your life? And then a pastoral perspective I want to give you. What happens if God doesn't answer? What if he doesn't answer? Friends, he always hears. We ask because he asks us to, but the end goal of prayer isn't answered prayer. The end goal of prayer isn't answered prayer. The end goal of prayer is trust. The end goal is not answered prayer. The end goal is trust in a God who cares for you. So oftentimes, you may not get the answered prayer that you thought, but if you grow in trust through it, then the prayer has been answered. His ways are not our ways. Your will be done. See, when we pray and something doesn't happen, we're invited to trust God in the journey. Countless times, the prayers have gone unanswered. We must not get pushed back into the river of cynicism, but it's his character that holds us together. Parker Palmer says this, The deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without faith, hope, and love. So man, through the chaos of the unknowns of you praying and God not answering, I invite you to know that the deeper desire in all of it is that we would trust in the Father who cares for us. And so we have a participation, we have posture and practice and persistence and power. Friends, we are invited to rule through prayer. 
you are invited to rule through prayer according to his will being done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you made a way for prayer to happen. It's not because we've got life figured out. It's not because we have merit or our resumes halfway decent. It's by your sheer grace and mercy that we can enter, come before you as our Father. I pray that your grace and your presence would motivate us in prayer. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts afresh to be a people who pray. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from our cynicism and reset us into a posture of childlikeness. In Jesus' name.